it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. From the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It is Thursday, March the 3rd, 2022. My name is Guy Benson. Welcome to the Guy Benson Show. Every weekday, 3 to 6 Eastern. Coast to coast, all across the country and around the world, we appreciate you listening. And if you can't listen during our show time frame, there's a podcast that is free every day on demand. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. GuyBensonShow.com. I'm the political editor at TownHall.com, also a Fox News contributor. And today and tomorrow, we are doing the show from sunny South Florida. Am I looking literally at palm trees right now? Yes, I am. Am I upset about that? No, I am not. I am especially delighted, however, that each and every one of you are joining us on this Thursday edition here on the program. Here's the lineup for you before we dive in. Ronna McDaniel, RNC chair. She will be here later on in the hour talking about the 2022 elections, the State of the Union address, and more. Eli Lake will join us in the next hour. Some really shocking developments involving the Biden administration on foreign policy related to Russia, but only somewhat tangentially. There is something else going on involving Iran that you need to know about. And the fact that there's a tie-in with Russia, I think, is a rather dark wrinkle to that story. We'll have, of course, plenty on Russia and Ukraine today. uh, No doubt about that, as that story continues to unfold. Dr. Nicole Sapphire will join us later in the program as well in our final hour talking COVID. Got a couple questions for her, an article out in the Atlantic. Another one of these now-it-can-be-said stories involving masking in children and some of the problems it causes, particularly for some special needs kids. We'll get to that with Dr. Sapphire. And also in our final hour, we will catch up with Congresswoman Liz Cheney, Republican of Wyoming. We will focus mostly on Ukraine, of course, in that interview. Fox News alert as we get going. Let's bring you stats. 79 million confirmed cases in the United States all in cumulatively over the last two years of COVID-19. That is a vast underestimation for various reasons. We discuss them frequently. But the official tally, 79 million. The death toll, now 953,134 Americans who have died with or of COVID over the course of this pandemic. The Dow is sinking. It's in the red, currently down 138 points, trading at 33,753. We have about 50 minutes to go until the closing bell, all the way up Route 95 in New York. Well, as I mentioned, and in previewing the show and our guests, there is no doubt that we will continue to place a heavy emphasis on Ukraine and Russia and the war that is ongoing there. And there are some indications that things are perhaps about to get worse. There was a conversation between the president of France, Emmanuel Macron, and Vladimir Putin. Putin called him to basically inform him that He intends to see this through. He is going to capture the entirety of Ukraine 
And it was kind of like a brace for impact warning call. Like, we're going to do whatever it takes. So the reports of shelling in civilian areas and reports of public executions that they're considering doing, I fear that the worst is ahead of us, not behind us. But there are also some bright spots. It seems like the Russians are making decent progress, unfortunately, in the south. Not so much in the north, especially coming down to Kiev. Their designs have been frustrated almost at every turn. And there's now growing pressure within Russia, it seems, on the regime. So a mixed bag. We'll get the latest later on in the program from Eli Lake and Congresswoman Cheney. I did want to open the show today closer to home. And I want to talk about what happened in Texas on Tuesday. We touched on it a little bit yesterday on the show, just briefly. But there's a story here that I think is quite interesting. Texas held its primary election on both sides on Tuesday. And the results of that primary election are, I think, intriguing and informative and perhaps may offer a glimpse or a window into what's coming in November. There's also another side to this that I want to bring in that I'll get to here in just a second. And I think once you see where I'm going with it, you'll be very intrigued to learn what angle I want to explore a little bit further. I think you're going to see where I'm headed. But let's just discuss what actually happened. What happened was Republicans vastly outnumbered Democrats in terms of the primary electoral turnout. And again, we just sort of kissed on this subject a little bit yesterday. But as of now, and virtually all of the votes are now counted and reported, 1.94 million Republicans turned out in the GOP primary. At the top of the ticket, of course, it was Greg Abbott, the incumbent. He will be the nominee again for governor. And on the Democratic side, it was 1.06 million. So 1.94 versus 1.06, that is a very significant gap, much larger than it was R versus D in 2018, for example. So if you want a sense of who's energized, who's enthused, who is feeling the intensity right now, I mean, it's, it's not exactly... Subtle. We saw it in Virginia, of course, where Governor Glenn Youngkin has a plus nine approval rating in a new Roanoke poll. I mentioned that yesterday with Senator McConnell. Youngkin's plus nine in Virginia. Same poll. Biden, President Biden, is minus 12 in Virginia. It's a blue state that he won by 10. So that shift in Virginia, the shift in New Jersey, some of the local races in places like New York, Pennsylvania, school board races around the country, now we're seeing it in the primary elections in Texas. And yes, Texas is a red state, but Democrats, haven't they been telling us now for years that they're right on the brink of flipping it blue? That is not looking like it's the case, certainly not in 2022 in the Lone Star State. Now, what's interesting about what happened on Tuesday is... Down by the border, and we've been covering this phenomenon, down by the border, heavily Hispanic areas, heavily Democratic areas, traditionally. Those counties, those districts are starting to shift in the red direction. And 
according to the Center for Politics, they looked at the results and they looked at the turnout in the primaries, which are overwhelmingly Democratic through the years. And there was a change from the average, from the recent average between 2014 and 2020 versus 2022. There has been a clear shift toward Republican primary turnout, increased Republican primary turnout as a share of the overall primary pie, if you will. Like, for example, the Democratic share of the primary vote in 2018 in these counties ranged from 91% to 100%. It's just like all Democrats, almost no one was turning up to vote on the Republican side. Well, in 2022, there has been a drift. It's still heavily Democratic, but not by the same dramatic margins. Now it's you know, 74 to 94 percent. And the percentage change and drop of the Democratic share of the uh, of the primary vote has ranged from roughly 3 percent to even 23 percent. If you look at some of these border counties. What the Center for Politics concludes is, quote, the improved Republican share of the Texas primary vote compared to four years ago does line up with several other national indicators suggesting an engaged Republican electorate. Here's another stat from the Texas primaries. Republican turnout in last night or now Tuesday night's primary exceeded both the 2018 and 2020 primaries in every single Texas border congressional seat. So that's an uptick in Republican participation, or at least people becoming Republicans, or deciding to vote in the Republican side of things all along the border. Carl Rove in the Wall Street Journal today writes this, Republican enthusiasm was on display in Texas in the country's first 2022 primary. He goes through some of the numbers. He says there's been an increase among Republicans of more than 23% compared to 2018. That is a very steep increase, a 23% increase. Turnout for Republicans seems to have exploded, he writes, in largely Hispanic South Texas. With almost every ballot counted, the GOP turnout was up 162% in Cameron County over 2018, 113% in Hidalgo County both of which lie in the lower Rio Grande Valley. Republican turnout also up in by 50% in Nueces County, dominated by Corpus Christi, up 51% in El Paso. Carl Rove says Hispanics joining the GOP will hurt the Democrats badly in Texas and outside Texas. I mentioned this yesterday. There are three seats along the border, congressional seats, controlled by the Democrats. And Republicans appear to have nominated in all three of those seats Latinas to challenge the Democrats. Dave Wasserman, who follows this stuff for a living, says Republicans are at least favored in one of those seats already. But all three, he says, could be in play if it's a big red wave year. So that's all interesting. I think the fact that you have Republicans winning by, what, 900,000 votes or so head-to-head in the primary participation. I mean, that gives you a sense of who's most excited to turn out. And we know that independents certainly at the moment are leaning R around the country. That is no doubt the case, probably more so in Texas. So that's a red flag, so to speak, for the Democratic Party in Texas. 
But there's another side to this that I want to touch on. We were told, were we not, that the new Texas elections law was dreadful, racist, horrible, cynical, dangerous, anti-democracy voter suppression. Right? They lost their minds over this voting law that they've implemented in the state of Texas. Oh, it's going to be so much harder for people to vote. Oh, they're cutting voting hours, even though they were actually expanding early voting in meaningful ways. What they weren't doing was making permanent the emergency measures from the pandemic, which is a completely rational and reasonable thing to do. But Democrats, of course, decided to charge those common sense measures and frame those measures as voter suppression, which is what they always do with everything, including just basic voter ID laws. That's suppression. Everything's always suppression, suppression, suppression. Well, what happened, though? For all of the warnings about suppression, and I'll remind you, the Texas Democrats fled the state. Remember that? I had to remind myself of that actually earlier today. They all got on that private jet together without masks on. Remember this? They fled the state so there wasn't a quorum so they couldn't vote for this thing until finally some of them started to relent and come home and they had the quorum and they passed it. But they're like, we're fighting for democracy and we're standing with Stacey Abrams and we're not going to let this happen in Texas and that whole thing. They came to D.C. They tried to sing We Shall Overcome and they failed at the press conference. Remember that? They gave everyone COVID. That was another thing that happened. A whole comedy of errors. We actually had some fun with it. But the fleabagger Democrats made such a huge deal. They're like, we must stand up against voter suppression and we must stand up for democracy. Well, they failed in that little stunt. The law was passed and now it's been implemented. And this was the first election under the new system. What happened? What did that vote suppression look like in Texas on Tuesday? Well, let's do the math together. In 2018, four years ago, the Texas governor primary turnout total was 2.56 million, all in. So about 2.5 million Texans voted in the primary in 2018. Now, four years later, 2022, you've got voter suppression, supposedly, in place. What was the number? 2.98 million and counting. It could get to 3 million. So hundreds of thousands more Texans have voted in this cycle than did four years ago in the governor's race. If that's voter suppression, that's pretty lousy voter suppression with turnout going up. Now, what the Democrats might say is, well, that's just because all these Republicans are fired up because they hate Biden. Right, they hate the brand administration, whatever they call them. They're all ready to go, chomping at the bit. 2018, our people were fired up because Trump was in the White House. Republicans controlled everything. Now, you know, our side is, you know, a little bit more demoralized. If you add the demoralized Democratic Party, the less intense Democratic Party, the less enthusiastic Democratic base, plus voter suppression, the whole point is to suppress Democrat votes. That's their that's their whole theory of this. Democrat votes, specifically people of color, right? this is what they always say. All right, so let's get rid of the Republican numbers altogether. Let's only look at the Democrats. In 2018, about 1.06 million Democrats voted in a statewide primary. 
four years ago. $1.06 million. Oh, check that. That was this year. 2018, it was $1.04 million. This year, it's $1.06 million. Even on the Democratic side, just on the Democratic side, with their supposed voter suppression fear-mongering, with their party more depressed, with all the political dynamics helping the Republicans, the wind at the back of the Republicans, you would think all of that combined would lead to some real suppression among the Democratic electorate, and yet it went from 1.04 million participants four years ago to 1.06 this year. It's up, despite all of the dynamics cutting against them. Again, that's some pretty lousy, quote-unquote, suppression. The suppression story was always a lie. The numbers show that it's a lie. The people who wanted to vote showed up and voted in larger numbers than they did before the new law was in place. The proof, as they say, is in the pudding. And the suppression demagogues have once again had their narrative blow up in their faces. And I was very eager to tell you about it. And that's what we've done to open the show. It's the Guy Benson Show. A lot to get to here. We are loaded up with guests. Please stay with us and stay tuned. The Guy Benson Show. More next. The Fox News Rundown. A contrast of perspectives you won't hear anywhere else. Your daily dose of news twice a day. Featuring insight from top newsmakers, reporters, and Fox News contributors. Listen and subscribe now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. We are a stronger nation when we allow people to participate. And if we ever doubted that, the war that... Putin is waging against Ukraine. President Zelensky said, and I'm going to paraphrase him probably poorly, he said, this isn't a war on Ukraine. This is a war on democracy in Ukraine. When we allow democracy to be overtaken by those who want to choose who can be heard, Mm -hmm. and those choices are not based on anything other than animus or inconvenience, then that is wrong. It's the Guy Benson Show, and that is the voice of Stacey Abrams who believes she's governor of Georgia, but now she's running for governor of Georgia again, maybe in her mind for re-election, never conceded that race that she lost 2018. She was on The Daily Show, and Trevor Noah's just nodding along, furrowed brow. Oh, yes, mm, good point. Comparing her whole voter suppression lie here at home to what's happening in Ukraine and talking about Putin, what in this story is she Zelensky? This is myopic. This is totally insane but also quite on brand for Stacey Abrams. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton Withrow. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. It's the Guy Benson Show. I'm in Florida today and tomorrow. Glad to have you guys on board every day, 3 to 6 Eastern Time. GuyBensonShow.com, the one-stop shop for all of your program needs, including the free podcast every single day that's on demand, no charge to you. 
Well, joining us now is Ronna McDaniel. She is the chairwoman of the Republican National Committee. You can follow her on Twitter at GOP Chairwoman. And Ronna, it's great to have you on the show. Great to be with you again, Guy. Thanks for having me. So I wanted to just pick up on something with you that I opened the show on today, which is the results, which are now more solidified out of Texas in the primary elections from Tuesday. And what I found very interesting was the Democrats, as you certainly recall, from Texas, who serve in Austin, all fled a number of months ago. They skedaddled out of Austin to D.C., made a huge show out of it because they wanted to stand up against what they called voter suppression in the new elections law in that state. Well, that law is now in place. It's been implemented. And turnout, Republicans and Democrats combined, versus four years ago, is up hundreds of thousands of people, even on the Democrat side. It's up tens of thousands of people over 2018, which was a very high-intensity, high-enthusiasm year for Democrats with Beto O'Rourke against Ted Cruz and all of that. Turnout is up across the board big time in Texas in spite of what they say is suppression. I feel like there's a real problem with their narrative when reality and actual outcomes intervene. Well, remember, this is the Democrat Party that said, follow the science, follow the science, and suddenly the science coincided with the State of the Union and we didn't have to wear masks. And now it's, let's follow the facts. They're calling these election laws suppressive. And we've now seen in Texas and Georgia, both states where the DOJ has intervened, saying, oh, these laws are going to prevent people from voting. We've actually had higher voter turnout in both states this year, and we've actually seen no problems. So they're lying. And, of course, now as we've seen this come forward, are they going to say, well, the facts have shown that we were wrong, that these laws actually are great? And (laughs) what are they calling suppressive? What are they saying is racist about these laws that we're asking for people to show an ID and verify who you are if you're going to vote? Uh, And the Democrats say that's a terrible thing as they push people to show a vaccine card and ID just to eat or to go to a restaurant. So they're full of you know what. I'll be nice here because I'm on your show. Um, and we <laughs> so know radio. These I have to be laws careful. Are good. Yeah, these laws are good. <laughs> oh, and, and the thing is, I mean, the whole song and dance that they perform about suppression and all of it, I mean, maybe they're nervous, Rana, that a lot of people of color in Texas are actually switching sides. They're showing up all right, but more of them are now showing up in the other party's primary. I know Democrats like to believe that they own certain voting blocks. Uh, That's never the case, but it's increasingly dubious in terms of that claim for Hispanics in Texas. That's probably part of the concern that they have here, which is why they have no choice to shout suppression, even though the facts and the data don't support that claim, that demagoguery. Yeah, they push suppression to create a narrative so they can pass their Voting Rights Act, the Right to Cheat Act that they tried to pass which would have stripped voter ID laws in 36 states. And what they are saying is we can't play in a fair playing field. And they they don't recognize that minority voters are coming in droves to the Republican Party because we talk about issues like school choice, economic opportunity zones, freedom, uh, freedom, religious freedom, so many things that are resonating in communities. And the Republican Party is showing up. We have outreach offices all across Texas. They are booming with Hispanic voters who are finally saying, I'm, I've grown up a Democrat my whole life, and now I am a Republican. 
and they are voting, and that's why we flipped the McAllen mayor's race. That's why we won uh, races in House District 118, and Democrats are scared to death. So what do they want to do? Uh, blame it on the laws. Meanwhile, I don't know if you heard this. We just played the clip in the last segment. On The Daily Show last night, Trevor Noah is the host there. He had guest Stacey Abrams on, and she decided to bring her sort of performance that she always does about voter suppression. She still hasn't conceded that she lost the last time in 2018 down in Georgia. She's taken another shot at governor down in Georgia. She decided to to sort of meld her dishonesty with another major news item or uh, sort of major story around the globe right now. Listen to Cut 10 as she tries to combine these two narratives. We are a stronger nation when we allow people to participate. And if we ever doubted that, the war that Putin is waging against Ukraine, President Zelensky said, and I'm going to paraphrase him probably poorly, he said, this isn't a war on Ukraine. This is a war on democracy in Ukraine. When we allow democracy to be overtaken by those who want to choose who can be heard, Mm -hmm. and those choices are not based on anything other than animus or inconvenience, then that is wrong. So I think in this analogy, which is torture to say the least, the Republicans are Putin waging war on a democracy and Stacey Abrams is Zelensky or something. She once again flatters herself there. I mean, this is actually quite deranged and unhinged. But this is a a heroine within the Democratic Party whose election lies have only created sort of a cult following for her at the highest levels of the party. Seems like she's paid almost no price within her party for the many, many lies that she engages in and then the racial provocation, et cetera. She lies so many times. And and to be fair, let's look at the Democrat Party. That's the party that's canceling people. If you don't agree with them, you are deplatformed on every single level. And I can't think of anything more. Uh, undermining the democracy than the Democrats passing laws allowing non-citizens to vote, which we've now seen in New York and Vermont, 900,000 non-citizens illegal, uh, uh, illegally allowed to vote in the state of New York. That is a new law. I, Democrats seem to be radio silent on that. Uh, and that is the greatest threat, I think, to our democracy. You should be a citizen to vote in our elections. You should show an ID. You should make sure that there's verification. We shouldn't have ballot harvesting. Democrats do everything they can to undermine the election and then say, oh, we need fairness, when really the practices they are pushing are degrading our democracy. Ronna McDaniel is my guest, chairwoman of the Republican National Committee. There's another clip I want to play for you. This is from MSNBC. Chuck Todd, who, of course, is the anchor of Meet the Press, he had Jennifer Palmieri on, a Democratic strategist, and they were sort of together venting frustration about the president's unpopularity on the economy and broadly Americans' dissatisfaction with the economy. And if you look at the polling averages, the president's like 20 points underwater on that issue. I think most people understand why, but apparently Chuck Todd and Jen Palmieri don't understand why. Todd suggested that it's perhaps because of a right-wing echo chamber spreading misinformation. Listen to this, cut nine. 51% 51% believe the economy's in a recession or depression. I mean, yeah. look, I mean, it, it's just not true. I know. Our, this economy's frustrating. This economy with COVID has been, I've got money and I can't find something. But my God, there's jobs. There's good jobs. Is this a, the right-wing echo chamber is better than the Democratic echo chamber? Or For sure. Echo chamber, or is 
or, or is there something else missing here? I mean, for sure, the, the right-wing echo chamber is always better than the Democratic echo chamber. It's not because <laughs> Democrats aren't smart and strategic. It's Thank because you. we just don't repeat what we're yeah. told to say, and we never will. They're not good at echoing. Yeah. We're not, <laughs> All right. So uh, to me, there's several levels of delusion here, right? The idea that they don't have an effective echo chamber and they're, they don't take their orders and repeat their talking points. I mean, that that's what they do all the time. They own every echo chamber, Twitter, yeah, the, Facebook, the whole, mainstream Basically, media. the entire news media is their echo chamber. And Chuck Todd just seems angry, frankly, that the American people aren't realizing how good the economy actually is. Now, look, we're not saying that statistically there's a depression right now. But there are a lot of people hurting. Their purchasing power is way down. People feel a great amount of economic anxiety. Inflation is real and getting worse. There's pain. And he's like, oh, well, it's a little bit frustrating. Uh, you know, is it just the, the right-wing echo chamber? I guess he thinks it's our fault. And with all due respect to us, I mean, we have a, a decent platform. Most Americans don't pay attention to hardcore political news all the time. The reason the president is unpopular, the reason that Americans feel this way about the economy, is because it's what they're experiencing in their lives, not because they are buying some sort of diabolical spin that conservatives are spoon-feeding to them, right? I mean, it, it just it's amazing that they're convincing themselves otherwise. We're trying to. Exactly. Listen, this is the elitist wing of the Democrat Party. It's become the whole Democrat Party that really has lost sight of average America. I'm from Michigan. Let me just tell you, we're hurting, um, not just with gas prices. I can't even tell you how many restaurants or businesses you go by that are closing early because of the labor shortage that still exists in the middle of the country. There are still goods missing. There's a lot of anxiety. Our kids definitely miss learning, and we're dealing with the aftermath of that. Uh, and it's funny that they choose to say, you're just making this up and, uh, oh, this is just a right wing conspiracy because they don't want to listen to the American people. And I think Joe Biden showed that in his State of the Union. They choose to talk over us instead of hearing the concerns and they dismiss us by saying, oh, they must be a Republican or they must be racist or they must be that. These are real concerns from good people who work hard, who love this country, who are suffering right now and are being ignored by the most part, by the mainstream media and certainly by our president. Yeah, and it's not like, you know, 57% of the American people or 60% of the American people are not being bamboozled by right-wing media to believe some narrative or some story that isn't true. People feel it because they're seeing it in their lives, not because, you know, Sean Hannity is telling them that that's what they're supposed to think. I mean, it's I think it's a dangerous... And they ignore it at their peril, guys. Right, right. brought Trump into office. Listen, I know. I saw the auto jobs leave Michigan and go to Mexico. I saw the shift from union workers who were always Democrat to the Republican Party because Trump came in and actually listened to them. And when the Democrats just ignore us and they say, oh, we're going to dismiss them, this is made up, they're doing this at their own peril. And the American people are definitely feeling unheard right now. And, and there's no empathy coming from this White House on any of the issues that Americans are dealing with day after day after day. And they're not just dismissing conservatives. They're dismissing reality in this case. And I think yeah. your point is exactly right. If they want to keep doing it, I mentioned that it was delusional. That was the word that I used. It's a self-delusion, and it's a counterproductive one from their own standpoint because they all, they're all on the same team, right? They're on Team Blue. The journalists, the Democrats, the strategists, the progressive activists, broadly speaking, they're all on Team Blue. If they want to turn a blind eye to things that are going to harm 
their team at the ballot box. I mean, that's a decision and a choice that they are making. And I guess they're welcome to make it if they want to. I want to ask you, Rana, about a controversy within the Republican Party. I know that you deal with this a lot. There was <laughs> recently There's never controversy in our party. <laughs> I know, I know. And you're like, whatever are you talking about, Guy? Well, I have no idea what you could even be talking about. A number of weeks ago, you at the RNC, there was a vote to censure a number of Republicans in the House of Representatives, one of whom, Liz Cheney, is going to be on this show later today talking about Ukraine. And I understand there's frustration with her and with a few others based on looking backwards at 2020 and then January 6th and that whole committee. I'm just trying to, from my vantage point, get a handle on what is a censure-worthy action within the Republican Mm -hmm. Party, i.e., will there be a censure, for example, of Marjorie Taylor Greene for addressing that white supremacy group? Is that, like, what, what is bad enough behavior in the eyes of the RNC to warrant a censure from within the party? Yeah, I think it's really unusual. It's not happened in the history of our party. We are a body of 168. Somebody brought the resolution to the meeting, and they they had the the support of the members to to pass it. Two things, I would say. I think the main issue for Liz and Adam is that they would be willing to work on a committee where the Republican Party was not allowed to appoint members, which— I think everybody knows historically has never happened before. You know, I think it's going to taint whatever results are from this committee, because why wouldn't you allow Kevin McCarthy to appoint his own members? This is and, and allowing Nancy Pelosi to do that really hurt that. And then we had a, a, a lot of RNC members who were not at uh, the Capitol on January 6th, who had nothing to do with the events that we've all condemned on January 6th. We're not for violence or any of that. Um, who've been subpoenaed. Ninety percent of the people who've been subpoenaed weren't even at the Capitol. So there's a feeling of we don't even have advocates on this committee. There's no checks. Um, You know, you get a jury on your peers if you're being tried or you go into a a courtroom. Right now, it's just a jury of enemies. And a lot of Republicans are facing that. And one in particular, a woman who's a very close friend of mine who just lost her husband, a farmer from Michigan, had just been subpoenaed. And it's just heartbreaking to watch the stress on top of everything she's else, else she's dealing with of dealing with this committee and lawyering up. It's just wrong. And so that's the censure. That's what it is. Why would you allow Nancy Pelosi well, to not appoint Republicans? Well, there, there, was a, Republicans there was an offer, voice. right, to make it bipartisan, and the Republicans rejected the bipartisan offer. No, they, so put they, members, they put members forward, and then Nancy Pelosi said no. We right, that was, after, that was after they rejected the bipartisan offer. Then they went to a different type of committee, and then Pelosi you know, brought down the hammer. She and said, I, that, I mean, that's true. No, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not defending that. that I'm not defending so, that. Listen, we have differences of, of opinion in our party. There's people who voted many different ways coming out of January 6th. That's different. But for the RNC membership, that was a step too far. And that's where they went on this resolution. So there's the I member from we'll... Georgia that I mentioned, just to jump in, the member from Georgia just appeared proudly, it seemed, with white nationalists or white supremacists and pretended that, oh, I didn't, I just was there by accident. They were chanting for Putin and all of that. Is that something that should be worthy of a censure? Well, I'm just trying to. All, I don't put the resolutions forward, and I don't speak for the 168. So I've already said the 168 will meet again in August. There's already a member who said they're going to draft something, and then the 168 will vote on this. I don't want to be in the business of the Republican Party of saying who's a Republican and who's not. Um, that's for the voters to decide. I do think it is unique for. Um, 
RNC, or for Republicans to be part of a committee where the minority was not allowed to have a voice. Okay, and, and last think, question, just quickly, 30 seconds. One other Republican that I think we both agree on, both like and respect, Kim Reynolds, the governor of Iowa. She gave the response to the State of the Union on behalf of Republicans. Just quickly, your thoughts on what she did on Tuesday night. I think uh, the story of 2022 is look at what Republican governors did to follow the science, keep, keep their states open, keep their kids in school. Kim Reynolds is a leading uh, example of that versus what Joe Biden has done. That is the contrast of Republican versus Democrat leadership. Do we want Gretchen Whitmer or do we want Kim Reynolds? Do we want Ron DeSantis or do we want uh, Pritzker? Look across the country. And she did a great job. And she listened to the American people. Everything I heard in her voice were the issues that in her speech were the issues I'm hearing every day as I travel the country. And Joe Biden didn't address those. Ronna McDaniel is the RNC chairwoman. Ronna, so appreciate your time today. Let's talk again soon. Thanks for having me, Guy. You bet. Guy Benson Show, back after this. The Guy Benson Show. More next. Back on the Guy Benson Show, we went a little long there with the chairwoman of the RNC, Ronna McDaniel. So we will just let you know that upcoming, we've got a lot to bring you, including a story that I would call shocking, except maybe it's not so shocking. Given the history at play with the Obama administration, the Obama-Biden administration on Iran and that nuclear deal, they have tried to resuscitate a deal, a terrible deal that was dead, killed by the Trump administration rightly. And they are currently negotiating through the Russians with the Iranian regime. And they are whistleblowers warning that they are about to give away the store to the Iranians. Some of the truly outrageous details coming up in our next hour of The Guy Benson Show. Don't go anywhere. city in the world unconventional talk from a fresh unconventional conservative guy benson show it is a brand new hour here on the guy benson show thanks for tuning in every weekday three to six eastern and around the clock on demand for free that's the podcast option if you can't listen live all the info that you would possibly need is at guy bensonshow.com we're broadcasting from south florida as i mentioned at the top of the last hour from my current broadcast location i see palm trees delightful very happy to be here in freedom land for at least a few days fox news alert as we begin our middle hour the dow ends the day down in the red closing at 33,794 that is down 96 points. Well, we teased this at the end of last hour, and this requires a little bit of setting up an explanation, some context here. We all know what's happening in Ukraine. We all know who is responsible for what's happening in Ukraine. The Russian regime, and specifically Vladimir Putin. The world is mobilizing. The world is galvanized to punish Russia, and that's happening through sanctions and ostracizing actions of other sorts. And it is having a bite, but apparently not enough of one to deter the Russians or to stop the Russians. And Putin reportedly is absolutely dead set. I guess he's been humiliated and angered enough 
where the only, I guess, way to save face to some extent is to just absolutely destroy Ukraine. I don't know what his end game is. It's just all bad options for him, but this is the situation that he's created for himself. And the deaths of many more Ukrainians and Russians, by the way, seems inevitable because this unfathomable monster is, I guess, in the process of going through some sort of identity crisis. Or, you know, his ego has been bruised and therefore a bunch of people have to die even more. And it could get worse. That's the indication right now. So it's egregious. It's appalling. It's unforgivable. And we heard the president at the State of the Union sort of beating the drum and thumping the chest and in a lot of ways saying good things to rally the world and keep the pressure on Russia and place the blame where it belongs and all of it. I don't have a problem with any of that. What I do have a problem with, and I've said this a few times this week already, but this is really going to underscore the problem and the disconnect between words and certain crucial actions. What I do have a problem with is the Biden administration continuing to treat the Russians sort of like it's business as usual on other fronts. We had the soundbite that we played of John Kerry, John Kerry, the climate czar, who's saying, oh, gosh, think of the carbon footprint of this war. What a shame. It's a distraction from climate change. But we really want to keep working with the Russians. He said, I hope Mr. Putin continues to work with us on climate change. So, like, yes, you are raping and pillaging an entire country, taking over a sovereign democracy, murdering a bunch of people. But we got to prioritize climate change. And we need your help on that. So it's, it's the same Faustian bargain that Kerry's trying to make with the Chinese Communist Party. Same exact thing. Right? Where he's like, well, look, you, you know, you shrug emoji. At some of the genocide, there's still the planet. Another issue set that falls under this category, and I've mentioned it a couple times, is Iran. So under the Obama-Biden administration, there was the totally disastrous Iran nuclear deal, which basically gave Iran permission to become a threshold nuclear state over a period of years with sunsets of various restrictions And the concessions from Iran were minimal. This was such a bad deal that there was a strong bipartisan majority of Congress against it, including a lot of Democrats. You had like 60 percent of Congress on the record against the nuclear deal. Of course, they never voted on it because Obama didn't send it to Congress. He didn't make it a treaty. He did it unilaterally and cut Congress out of the process and actually spent a lot of time demeaning and smearing the critics of the deal who were correct. The critics of the deal were correct because it was a lousy, lousy deal that benefited Iran and their long-term nuclear ambitions in the name, supposedly, of doing the opposite. And when President Trump pulled America out of the GCPOA, or JCPOA is what it's called, That's like the shorthand official version of it. You can call it the nuclear deal. When Trump pulled us out of it, a lot of the, you know, usual experts, sort of like, you know, lefty foreign policy set, Ben Rhodes and that whole crew, they absolutely lost their minds. But Trump was right. And a lot of people in the region and even governments in that region were very grateful and got a lot more serious about being a counterweight to Iran. 
and you started to see peace deals breaking out between the Israelis and Arab states, the things that we were told would happen if Trump moved forward with his policies on Iran and Israel and moving the embassy, for example, to Jerusalem, all of the dire predictions were wrong from the smart set foreign policy establishment, especially on the left. But now you've got that same crew back in charge under President Biden. And of course, they are rushing to get back into a bad nuclear deal with the Iranians. Now, why am I talking about this today? And why did I open this narrative? Why did I open this monologue by talking about Russia and Ukraine? Because it all plays in. There's a, there's a major strand of this that involves Russia. So the U.S. is not negotiating directly with the Iranians. They are negotiating through the Russians. We are using we, meaning America, but it's the Biden administration. The Biden administration is using the Russians as a conduit, the middleman, for this back-and-forth negotiation with the Iranian regime, which, by the way, I'll just remind you, is fanatically anti-American. Death to America is what they chant. They are fanatically anti-Semitic. They want to wipe Israel off the map. They've made that very clear repeatedly. They've said it. They are the number one state sponsor of terrorism in the world. They treat women horribly. They execute gays. I mean, the list goes on and on about Iran, one of the most evil regimes. They kill their own people. When their own people object to their abuses, they imprison them, they beat them in the streets, and they murder them. That's Iran. And they've been meddling. They've been killing Americans. They did it for years in Iraq. They are sending weapons to various terror organizations to this very day. That's been ongoing. Even under the Iran nuclear deal, the Iranians were continuing to develop illegal weapons. They are continuing to fund and arm terrorists. I mean, they are some of the worst actors on the planet. And the Biden people, the smart power people is how they fancy themselves. They're like, oh, let's get back into another nuclear deal where we let them spin centrifuges and, uh, centrifuges and do all this stuff, give them a bunch of concessions, undo a bunch of the sanctions that Trump correctly slapped on them. They didn't want that to stand. They want another deal in place. So that's what they've been negotiating through the Russians. So this is ongoing in Vienna, even with Russia doing what they're doing to Ukraine and the United States government's position being what it is on Ukraine. It's like, well, these other Russian diplomats, oh, we have to keep working with them because we need to give a giant amount of sanctions relief in a nuclear deal to a terrorist state. And we need the Russians to help us do that. So we're going to keep working with them on that front. There's there's some lack of seriousness, I would say. If you want to treat the Russians like a pariah, you treat the Russians like a pariah. You don't beg for their help on climate change. You don't beg for their help on an Iranian giveaway. But that's exactly what we're doing. Now, it gets worse than that, though. That's just the lead-up to this. The negotiations have been so bad in Vienna, from an American perspective, from an anti-Iranian regime perspective. It's going great from Tehran's perspective. Great. From our perspective, not so much. It's gone so poorly in terms of the concessions that we're willing to make to the Ayatollahs and the Mullahs that a number of our own negotiators 
on Biden's own team have quit in protest. This happened a few weeks ago. The Wall Street Journal broke the story. I'll read to you. With talks to restore the 2015 nuclear agreement with Iran reaching a critical phase, differences have emerged in the U.S. negotiating team over how tough to be with Tehran and when to walk away, according to people familiar with the negotiations. This was earlier this year. Late January, U.S. officials confirmed over the weekend that Richard Nephew, the deputy special envoy for Iran, has left the team. He was an architect of previous sanctions on Iran. He'd advocated a tougher posture in the current negotiations. Two other members of the team, which is led by State Department veteran Robert Malley, have also stepped back from the talks, people familiar said because they also wanted a harder negotiating stance. So if you read through the lines and some of the phraseology there, the verbiage, three people quit. Three senior members of the American Biden administration negotiating team, negotiating with the Iranians through the Russians, quit because we were being so unbelievably soft on Iran and giving the store. And they just couldn't be party to it anymore. These are career bureaucrats or career State Department officials. These aren't political folks. These are people who do this for a living, who are experts, trying to advocate for what's best for America. And they were being overruled so often that they said, we can't have our names on this anymore, and they walked away. So there's a former State Department official under the Trump administration named Gabriel Naronha. And I know some people will just say, oh, well, he worked for Trump. He's just one of these MAGA people. He was actually fired by President Trump for criticizing Trump very harshly after January 6th. And I think Trump deserved that criticism. But he was working for Trump at the time, so he got fired. That's how that works. He has been warning, and he put out a long Twitter thread yesterday, basically begging people to pay attention. He has sources close to these negotiations who know what's happening. This is a longtime State Department official who is saying, like, red alert, this is going incredibly dangerously. One of his sources, with inside deep knowledge of what's happening in Vienna in these discussions, says, quote, what's happening in Vienna is a total disaster. The entire negotiations have been filtered and essentially run by Russian diplomat Mikhail Ulyanov. So the guy running the negotiation is the Russians, is, is a Russian uh, apparatchik. You think they have America's best interests at heart, the Russians running this negotiation? And apparently the concessions being made by the lead negotiator for Biden are just breathtaking, which is why three of his team members have resigned. So in this long thread, this former State Department official explains what some of the uh, negotiations have wrought and what some of these concessions are, including sanctions relief, removing sanctions on some of the absolute worst actors within this incredibly evil regime. People with gallons of blood on their hands, including American blood, including Jewish blood in anti-Semitic attacks. And I guess the Biden people are so desperate to get back in this awful nuclear deal that they're like, OK, yeah, we'll we'll relieve sanctions. We'll turn the spigot back on for for these various people. 
Also for banks, Iranian banks, including one that's known as the financial linchpin of Iran's covert, illegal missile procurement network. We have agreed, apparently, we, the Biden team has agreed to relieving sanctions and lifting sanctions on Iranian banks that are tied to their illegal weapons programs. I mean, the list goes on. I mean, there's dozens of tweets in this thread explaining what's happening. The lead negotiator for Biden has proposed to the Iranians that the United States would remove the IRGC, the Revolutionary Guard, remove them from the terrorist organization watch list from the State Department, delist them as a terrorist group, even though they are absolutely a terrorist group that has killed American soldiers, and also relieve sanctions on the IRJC, the Revolutionary Guard. And that's sort of the the acronym is IRGC. This has been one of the other offers put out there by the Biden administration through the Russians to the Iranians. Say, well, for all of that, we better be getting a lot. Are we? No. According to these officials who are very close to what's happening and know what's happening, the United States is getting nothing. We're getting a handful of hostages, which will only, by the way, incentivize more hostage-taking by the regime. If they can get huge, huge rewards in exchange for hostages, that's how that goes. You encourage terrible behavior. And then we just basically go back to the old Obama deal, but worse, and none of the deadlines are even extended. So the, the thresholds and the sunset timelines would remain the same as they were years ago. There's no update to them. This all benefits Iran. And what they want to do, by the way, is do an end run again around Congress, which is exactly what Obama did as well, where they would make a deal. Biden would sign off on it if this goes through. It hasn't happened yet, which is why we're really sounding the alarm. But if Biden agrees to this and he signs it, then that money goes to the Iranians. It goes to those people. It goes to those banks. It goes to, their, the, to those terrorist organizations. And even if Congress gets involved later, you know, the horse is out of the barn. The money is out of the coffer and back over to Iran. They're doing this on purpose to cut Congress out. It is absolutely outrageous what they're attempting. It's so bad that part of their team resigned in protest. And this State Department official says it is much worse than the Obama-era deal, which was bad enough. And it's the Russians who are running the show as our go-between, which is unfathomable, and yet here we are. The Biden administration and their foreign policy, where are they not failing? More on this coming up. It's the Guy Benson Show. Guy Benson will be right back. I'm Guy Benson. Following up on the last segment in my monologue about Russia and Iran, now there's this. Jillian Turner, our colleague at Fox News, tweeted this last evening. A European officials, or several European officials apparently, have now publicly said that the Chinese government, so the Chinese Communist Party, asked Putin 
to delay the invasion of Ukraine until after the Beijing Olympics, and Putin complied. Jillian says, I'm told both U.S. and U.K. intelligence officials saw that intelligence underlying this reporting. So the Chinese, and this was reportedly at the very highest levels of government, asked Putin to wait. Putin said yes, he waited, and then he invaded. There is a new axis of evil in the world that is emerging. Eli Lake next. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. It's the Guy Benson Show. We're back. On this Thursday from Florida. It is nice and toasty and warm down here. I always enjoy coming back to Florida, even if it's just a fleeting visit, which happens to be the case today, doing the show, of course, here tomorrow as well. And we just spent the first half hour of this hour talking about some developments involving the U.S., Russia, but then also Russia's connections to Iran and to China. To summarize, if you're just joining us, the Biden administration is engaged in a nuclear negotiation with Iran to try to get back into the Obama nuclear deal, which was fatally flawed, in my view, from the get-go. It went away under Trump, thank goodness, and now Biden wants to get us back into that, into that thing, under that agreement, which is extremely beneficial to the Iranians. And the reports that are coming out is the negotiations are going so well for the Iranians and so badly for the Americans that several members of the American negotiating team have quit in protest. And yet these talks continue. And the people running the talks, the go-between, the conduit, are the Russians, the same Russians that we say are a pariah globally right now, except we're relying on them to give the farm away, apparently, give the store away to Iran in these Vienna negotiations. And we're learning more about how much of a giveaway is evidently in the offing. And meanwhile, there is reporting that the Chinese government, the CCP, knew about this Ukraine invasion. They intervened with Putin not to get him not to do it, not to stop him, but simply to delay it for the purposes of their PR and their propaganda at the Olympics, and just said, please hold off. Putin did, and now the rest, unfortunately, is history. There's an increasing amount of cooperation between the Chinese and the Russians, and also the Russians and the Iranians, and all three of those countries are doing joint war games together. And the Biden administration apparently is kind of playing ball with all of them on various fronts. Joining me now is Eli Lake, National Security Journalism Fellow at the Clements Center at the University of Texas at Austin. He's a journalist who's covered these types of issues now for his whole career. Eli, good to have you back. Oh, thanks so much for having me, Guy. All right. I want to go sort of one issue at a time. I did my first segment in this hour, my opening monologue of the hour, on these reports about what's happening in Vienna. We know that The Russians are sort of running these negotiations. They are running back and forth between the U.S. delegation and the Iranians. There is new information, new allegations that what the Biden team is agreeing to is just like mind-blowing in terms of the giveaways to Iran. Again, all of it being communicated on our behalf by the Kremlin and, you know, their their designees. 
Uh, the Iranians seem to be on the brink of a a massive win here, so much so that some diplomats who've worked in the State Department for years, career people, have resigned or walked away from these negotiations in protest. But the chief negotiator is pressing forward, apparently with the blessing of Biden and Blinken. I mean, that unto itself, just the, the Russian, the continued Russian involvement as if diplomacy just marches on as normal, given what Russia's doing right now to Ukraine, that's bad enough. Then you get in the substance of what is allegedly happening and what we're willing to apparently give away in exchange for like nothing, an even worse deal than Obama got. I mean, it almost feels to me, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, it, it just feels like cartoonishly bad that I almost don't want to believe that it could be true, but I'm not naive at this point, and we saw what happened in the previous Democratic administration. I guess I'm not really surprised by any of it, even though I think it's uh, outrageous. Well, um, it's a it's a huge strategic failure on the part of President Biden, and it's for this basic reason. The world changed last uh, last month. The world changed because even though Vladimir Putin has probed the resolve of the free world for almost 20 years, he has always done so with a kind of either plausible deniability when he orders assassinations or cyber attacks or with some kind of fig leaf, barely a justification. So he didn't acknowledge in 2014 that there were Russian soldiers in Ukraine for several months. Um, you know, he, he waited until a kind of faux referendum in Crimea to annex that part of Ukraine. He provoked in 2008 the uh, Georgians to attack first when his intelligence services were ginning up conflict with separatists in Abkhazia and North Sesha. This time, he basically took a match to the U.N. charter and openly invaded Ukraine. His initial justification was essentially that he did not believe that Ukraine was a real country. It is the most flagrant in-your-face violation of the international system and the world order that we have seen probably since the founding of the United Nations in terms of it happening in real time. We all saw it. (coughs) So what does this mean? It means that we now have to accept the fact that we are no longer going to selectively engage Russia. And then let's think this through. The Chinese, and we didn't need this New York Times report to know that the Chinese are allies with Russia, that the Chinese will probably try to do their best to loan the Russians enough money to float their economy in light of this significant and unprecedented kind of economic blockade. And we know that both countries are also allies of Iran. This is the new axis of dirtbags, and they cooperate. And we need to understand that our geopolitics and the way that we do grand strategy is now changed forever. This was a hinge moment. And that means that we are no longer interested in engaging Iran, China, Russia, so that they can be knit together in in international institutions and various treaties. Except, Eli... We are interested because that's what the president and his administration are actively doing right now still. Like they they look with the same eyes that you and I have, the same ears they listen. They know exactly what's happening. They probably know more than either of us know. And they say, okay, uh, Putin's doing that. 
That's extremely bad. We're going to do a bunch of things over here explaining and acting on why it's so bad. But over here, we're going to continue working with Putin on climate change, which is what John Kerry said the other day. And we're going to continue relying on Putin and his uh, cronies and apparatchiks to run our negotiations to give a bunch of money to the Iranian regime uh, with basically no strings attached. I mean, that's that is the pursuit of policy that we are witnessing from this administration to this day, to this hour. And I guess they've been totally unmoved. The fact that three members of the negotiating team, career experts, career State Department officials who really know the intricacies of this stuff, they resigned from the team. It was getting so bad. And I guess the message from the Biden State Department is, we don't need them. Keep going. Give the Iranians more. And that's what's happening with the Russians actually negotiating on our behalf. I mean, it's 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 it shouldn't be um, shocking, given some of the context. But but it it is still, to me, somewhat shocking. Well, I I agree. But um, as I said, it's a huge mistake. I don't think that Biden understands the new world that we're in right now. And I credit Biden for um, at least, you know, I mean, I think he gets some credit for galvanizing Europe. And the response was a lot more than I anticipated from countries like Germany and, and, and France and even the United Kingdom. So in that respect, yeah, and I, I, um, I give, by the way, I give him some credit there, too. I also think most of the credit, yeah. quote unquote, goes to Putin, because I think Putin has well, been. I agree. And Zelensky, he of course. Europe straight. Right. Yeah. He, no, he, he, he terrified he, Europe yeah. through. By, by going as far as he did, as hard as he has, and it's going to get worse. And Zelensky has been nothing short of heroic. I'm not saying Biden doesn't deserve any credit. I just think Putin probably has something of a chuckle seeing like, okay, the administration is doing all of this, but they're still begging me to help them on climate change. I mean, that's the reality of it. Let me ask you this, Eli, just because yeah. I was talking about it and I was getting notes from some people who were listening. And part of what is being alleged is that these Iran negotiations are being conducted kind of like they were under Obama, where this wouldn't be a treaty. It would never come before Congress. It would just be something that the president would say, yes, I'm signing on to. It's binding, but not quite like a treaty. And they're doing it to cut Congress out of the picture because they want to get those dollars, the sanctions relief flowing to all these terrorist groups and the Revolutionary Guard and I guess anyone else that they're going to lift sanctions on in exchange for basically no concessions from the Iranians, that would happen immediately. The money would be gone before Congress could do anything. Based on your many years of reporting on this stuff, is there anything Congress could conceivably do? I don't know if they're going to do it under a Democrat-run House or Senate, but there are Plenty of Democrats still out there who are very, very skeptical of these types of uh, negotiations with the Iranians. Is there anything Congress might be able to do to put a stop to this? Because it really seems like, you know, an egregious giveaway that is avoidable, but only if action is taken. I just don't, don't know what that action would look like. Well, I think... You know, before Trump withdrew from the deal in 2018, there was a clause in legislation that gave Congress a sort of way to, you know, inf- get the administration to kind of 
bring back sanctions. I ha- I, I'm not entirely familiar with all of that, but there was some sort. There was sort of a mechanism by which Congress could say, you know, Iran is not living up to the deal or something like that. I think that a more effective approach is to do what many Republicans have done and said, and you know that. If there's a Republican president in three years, this this agreement is worthless. And the Iranians know that because the Iranians were asking for guarantees that, you know, a future administration couldn't get out of the deal, like Trump said. Um, but I just I have to say, I also think that because the, the the world has changed and the mood of the country has changed, that this is a political error that they the, the problem is. The Iran nuclear deal, known as the JCPOA, it's like a zombie cult now for the Democratic Party, where it doesn't matter that the old deal had limits on uranium enrichment that are going to expire in the com- in like the next few years. It do- that doesn't matter. It doesn't matter that you know when they were out of power, a lot of Democrats, including Tony Blinken and Jake Sullivan, the National Security Advisor, had said publicly that they needed to strengthen the deal and, and come up with an addendum agreement. It doesn't matter that everybody kind of recognizes that the old deal was really inadequate uh, because, you know, the main thing is they, they sort of see it as like, you know, this is Obama's legacy and we have to do this. And they all kind of convince themselves in a bubble that this is sound policy when it isn't. But that's just on the terms of Iran. Now with, as you know, the, 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 the Russian, you know, invasion of Ukraine, it's going to be very, I don't know that this is going to kind of, Redound to their credit in any way. I think the well, no, because I think this. I think a lot of voters yeah. look at all of it and say, absolute pathetic weakness in Afghanistan and a huge betrayal right. of so many people in Afghanistan. Now Putin is running roughshod over Ukraine. Now we're what going to send billions of dollars to a terrorist regime for nothing in return? I mean, it's it is just like a, a giant billboard. We're weak. And I think there's a lot of Americans, not just Republicans, who aren't necessarily in much of a mood for weak American leadership at this moment. And, and the stakes. I, you know, I, I, I agree with you. But, you know, as you're saying that, I thought of one potential thing for someone like Mitch McConnell and Republican leaders could do. And that would be to go to the White House in good faith and say, we understand that we're now entering a new phase of history and that this is a major geopolitical crisis in the center of Europe. And we want to work with you to develop a strategy for the next generation that will have buy-in from both parties. But you need to understand that we cannot be doing this kind of, so we're, you know, maybe if they can sort of approach it like that to take advantage, but this has a kind of, you know, reset politically, I think, moment in the sense that this thing happened in, in Europe that Putin did this horrible thing and, and sort of took off a mask he will never put on again. And, you know, this is going to force a lots of reassessment. It's already seen in Europe, and it should force a reassessment in this country. And it is a time for kind of a bipartisan yeah, unity like foreign policy. A reset button at home, not with the Russians this time. You know, exactly. no big, no big laughing moment between Hillary Clinton and Sergey Lavrov. It can actually be Republicans and Democrats saying, "Let's do something differently." Problem is, it seems like Team Biden is just fanatically, ideologically, politically committed to getting another nuclear deal with Iran, and they're willing to give away even more than Obama gave, which is sort of hard to fathom. But that's what's being reported right now. Eli, before we let you go. Did you see this report? And it's now I've seen it several places. Uh, there was great fanfare. Oh, the EU is going to send fighter jets 
to the Ukrainians because they have a tiny air force. Although apparently some planes are still flying for the Ukrainian air force. And uh, there were some, apparently some bombs dropped on that, that big, huge convoy that the Russians have north of Kiev. I saw reports of that today, but it's, it's fairly diminished and small to begin with Ukrainian air force. And the EU is going to give them jets. And then I guess they're reneging the EU or something fell through. What happened there? This is my speculation, but I think that Putin's decision to put his nuclear forces on an an elevated alert level really spooked uh, European capitals. And they were worried that this would be too provocative. And uh, I don't, you know, listen, everybody should want to try to prevent a nuclear exchange, but that cannot be the only consideration. There's so much at stake right now. And if there is a chance, and there is a chance to deliver a humiliating defeat to Russia, that might be an existential crisis for Putin's regime, which would be wonderful for the world. So instead of hoping that, you know, a couple Russian generals and a vial of cyanide will do the job, which we can't control and we shouldn't bet on, this is a way maybe to sort of turn the tide and not just save Ukraine, but save Russia from further rule from Putin. And he will have a lot of explaining to do if he loses this war. And if there's a way that we can help, you know, help with humanitarian corridors or something along those lines, then I think it is worth the risk because America and France and the United Kingdom have nuclear weapons, too. And the Russians don't want a nuclear war either. So, you know, unless people really think that he has completely lost his marbles and is like Hitler in the bunker at this point, then I think it's worth uh, stepping up support and, uh, you know, joining the fight to repel the Russian invaders. All right. Eli Lake, we've got to leave it there for now. National Security Journalism Fellow at the University of Texas in the Clement Center. Eli, thank you. Thank you. We'll be right back. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. Back on the Guy Benson Show. An interesting tie-in here in the extended Fox family when it comes to the war in Ukraine. Greg Gutfeld's mother-in-law is stuck in Ukraine right now. And apparently some of our people on the ground, Fox correspondents and producers, are working to help get her out. So Greg mentioned that on the five yesterday. So we are very much praying for her and Gutfeld's whole family that this resolves itself well. And I'm proud of our colleagues who are working to make that happen. Final hour coming up. It's five o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. It's a Thursday happy hour on the Guy Benson Show, live from Florida today and tomorrow. Glad to have you along. Always appreciate your listenership. Thank you. GuyBensonShow.com is our website here. The podcast is free of charge every single day, on demand, totally free. As I mentioned, I like to underscore that. You can download, you can subscribe, whatever your heart desires. Uh, It's free. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com. 
or wherever you get your podcasts. And for a lot of good content and info related to the show, beyond just GuyBensonShow.com, you can follow us on social media, at GuyBensonShow. That's Twitter. That's Instagram as well, at GuyBensonShow. And this hour, the happy hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink, which is crisp and delicious and very popular, actually, here in Florida. If you haven't tried it yet, you probably should. Only if you're 21 years of age or older, of course, and only if you drink responsibly, which we always encourage you to do. TheLongDrink.com is their website. You can see where they're sold near you. They're expanding. You can also order online. TheLongDrink.com. Joining us now is Dr. Nicole Sapphire. She's a board-certified medical doctor, senior Fox News medical contributor, and best-selling author of the book Panic Attack, playing politics with science in the fight against COVID-19. Doctor, great to have you here again. Hi, Guy. Thanks for having me. So I saw you tweet out this piece in The Atlantic, and a few other doctors that I follow did the same thing. And it's kind of in the same genre of now it can be told when it comes to COVID. And The Atlantic has actually done a fair amount of this. And, you know, part of me wants to give them credit for it because at least they're doing it and trying to bring some information to progressive readers who are often just uh, oblivious or not caring about the actual science when it comes to children in particular on COVID. On the other hand, it's sort of like we've known how damaging some of this has been, these policies for children, for a very long time. So maybe you get docked a few points of credit for waiting this long. But The Atlantic does have a story about the the impact of masking requirements on children, especially young children who are developing, trying to learn how to talk, especially those with special needs or people who are, you know, uh, struggling to communicate. And the trade-offs, I mean, seem pretty terrible for these children and their families. And this story written in The Atlantic and the headline is Speech Therapy Shows the Difficult Trade-Offs of Wearing Masks. It's written by Stephanie Murray. It just goes through and talks about the broader issue and then some specific examples of families who were put through hell by government bureaucrats telling them there were no exceptions. The CDC offered no exception. Your kid has to be in a mask. Your kid's therapist and teacher has to be in a mask. No exceptions. It doesn't matter if it was going to be a helpful mask for the kid, that was the rule. And if that stunted their development, oh, well, too bad. That is and has been the reality for so many families over the course of this pandemic. Reading the piece, I got, like, viscerally angry because it seems all so stupid and so unnecessary and so harmful. And yet it is, as I said, reality for a lot of families. And I wonder just what your reaction was as you read that piece. You know, Guy, it's actually interesting. I think we responded similarly. I also had a visceral visceral reaction because this is a known. We know that these children wearing masks in schools and in learning has negatively impacted them. But if you have said that throughout the course of the pandemic, you were anti-mask, anti-science, and spreading misinformation. Now, they put out this article, which is a great article, 
Because let me tell you, Guy, one in 12 children have some sort of speech or swallowing disorder. So we're not talking about a tiny fraction of the population. We're talking about a pretty significant amount of children who are in need of speech therapy. And one of the big things when it comes to speech therapy and some of the other behavioral techniques is to watch other people's mouths. And that is how that they also the therapist correct behaviors is by seeing the mouth. And I was a little optimistic six, eight months ago when the CDC updated their masking guidance saying that children who were unable to safely wear masks or for another reason couldn't wear a mask wouldn't have to wear it. But unfortunately, the schools, the states, they did not allow children with speech therapy or speech issues to be included in that category. They were talking about children who had such severe developmental disorders that they couldn't physically wear a mask without suffocating themselves. They didn't allow the children who would greatly benefit from being able to see other people's mouths or have their mouths watched. They were not included. And this is to the detriment and the reason that the visceral anger comes out is because they did this and they have continued to do this with zero and I say zero data demonstrating that these children wearing a cloth mask has any benefit, not to them or to those around them. They yep. did it because that is what the groupthink mentality was with zero data of proof. And I would say even if there was some evidence that there was some benefit to that type of mask wearing for kids, it would still be completely the wrong decision to force these types of kids to wear them, right, in these in these settings, in these circumstances, because the trade-off doesn't make sense because we know that kids overwhelmingly do not have severe outcomes from COVID. So even you could say that there's a slightly diminished chance, let's say, a diminished chance that the kid would uh, contract COVID if they're wearing a mask, but they're unlikely to have a severe case or die because that's just the truth about children. I think you would still have a very strong argument to say, let's still make this exception because it's that important. But what's so maddening is that hypothetical isn't true. <laughs> like there's, there's no benefit to the kids wearing the mask. It's not going to prevent them from getting COVID. They are still at the extraordinarily low risk level that they would be anyway. It just seems like abuse, completely pointless abuse that has been enforced by a ton of states and school districts basically following CDC guidance for well over a year and a half at this point. And the story in The Atlantic talks about one kid who, you know, for a while they had to do everything remotely. And remote speech therapy, as you might imagine, works even worse than remote learning broadly. The kids would refused to participate. This one kid would try to close the computer. He would disengage. He would turn his back. He wanted nothing to do with it. Then you finally get back in person because that round of insanity finally ends, but you still are forcing the kid and the adult to wear masks. So they tried to do see-through masks, but they would fog up. I mean, all for nothing, doctor. And I just feel like the the reason that I continue to highlight these stories is because I feel like the people who sometimes claim loudest that they love science the most have been willing to completely subjugate actual science here to other like political agendas. And I think that that is unforgivable. 
And I think that as little as we know about COVID, you know, and we know a lot at this point, much more than we did in the early days, but there's still a lot that we don't know. I think we're going to be finding out about the negative impacts of the so-called mitigation restrictions on kids in particular for years to come. That's my worry, that we that we barely even know the tip of the iceberg about what we've done to these kids. Oh, you're 100% right, Guy. I mean, what about the entire population of high school students and college students who have essentially been virtual or in social isolation? What is that doing to their development? These children are also still developing. Everything that has gone on throughout the course of this pandemic has been a, looking back, it'll be a comedic devastation because we'll look back and laugh at like, what the heck were they thinking? You're wearing a see-through mask with a child with at speech therapy. Are you kidding me? Why would you think that that's a good idea? This makes no sense. Anytime you talk about medical interventions, any of these mitigation efforts, they should always be a a benefit and risk analysis. That, unfortunately, was never done. Everything was always just pushed, pushed, pushed. You have to go in isolation, stay at home, wear masks, get vaccinated, do all of these things. And not once in the United States did we pause to consider the harm that may be being done. It was just this complete black and white push for all of these. And now we are only now only starting to see, as you say, the tip of the iceberg of the consequences of not considering the harms that they could have and certainly did cause from this. And we will see this in the years, decades to come. Meanwhile, the CDC finally under pressure, by the way, from the White House, changed their science. And I'm putting air quotes around that. Oh, the science changed just in time for the State of the Union. I mean, it's just so transparent and insulting. But they did make the change. And yet you have Gerald Harmon, who is the president of the American Medical Association, very big, influential organization, that immediately came out and rejected the new guidance from the CDC, saying that it's still too dangerous to have people not wearing masks because there's still a lot of people out there who are immunocompromised and look i have no problem with immunocompromised people choosing to wear like n95s and maybe limiting some of their interaction with people or making decisions to keep themselves safe that that is a rational thing for them to do it's not rational for the entire rest of society to rearrange society in perpetuity around those people i mean he's making a case it sounds to me the the american medical association president who's like, you know, even more restrictionist, apparently, than Rochelle Walensky and Dr. Fauci. It sounds like a case for just unending masking, sort of indefinite masking. And I mean, this is an influential doctor who's saying it. I just wonder what your reaction is to that. Well, first of all, the American Medical Association, we have to take them with a grain of salt because they have turned into over the last couple of decades into a political lobby house. And they certainly are not the voice of all of America's physicians. In fact, um, a huge percentage of America's physicians do not partake in the um, AMA. But, you know, it's interesting, and I agree with you. I'm not sure what the impetus behind him saying that was, but there will always be immunocompromised and immunosuppressed people throughout our population. We've been living with this before, and we will continue to live with this. Um, But it is not um, for the general public to continue masking, as we have Well, I'll 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 read you the quote, just so you have more context. He says, quote, wearing a mask, physical distancing, and staying home if you're sick 
are small but important protective measures that we can all do to help us all stay safe. While the Omicron surge has declined, COVID-19 is not gone. We must remain adaptable and vigilant in confronting this unpredictable virus. So it's basically saying, yeah, Omicron is basically over, but we don't have zero COVID. And therefore, wearing a mask and physical distancing is sort of something that we can continue to do in perpetuity. I mean, that's a paraphrase, but that's that's a paraphrase of his quote. You know, but he did essentially say, though, to wear a mask and do these things when you are sick, which, by the way, as Americans, we've always done a terrible job. At no, that. He, he, he only sick. said he was only saying stay home if you're sick. So it was it was wear oh, a mask, wow. a physical distance, B, stay home if you're sick, C. Yeah, well, I mean, to be honest, you know, I, I don't ascribe to that as you and I have discussed. If you are uh, immunocompromised, if you are immunosuppressed, and you have to do your best efforts to keep yes. yourself protected, but but life as we know it does does have to move forward. Zero COVID is not going to happen, and if and when it does eventually, then we'll have another respiratory pathogen coming. Think about RSV every winter. Do people completely stay away from every child under the age of five or wear a mask under the age of five because that's the most vulnerable but no we don't do that but those who are vulnerable avoid others we keep small children away from other people especially during flu and respiratory virus season just like uh, cancer patients on a chemotherapy and others avoid large settings when they are severely immunocompromised. That is how we need to move forward. We cannot keep these measures, the physical distancing in themselves, the social isolation and the lack of human interaction has been such a major detriment to society. Not to mention nearly, we're now approaching a million Americans who have been linked to a COVID death, and that has included masking, um, social isolation and everything else. So we need to make sure that we are doing less harm as we move forward. And that is by allowing life to regain a level of normalcy while those who are vulnerable protect themselves. Well, look, I'm here in Florida. It feels a lot more normal here than it does elsewhere that I've been recently. I'll put it that way. And it's refreshing. Dr. Nicole Sapphire, senior Fox News medical contributor. Doctor, always appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Guy. Before we step aside and go to break, I just want to bring you an update. At the very end of the last hour, I mentioned how Greg Gutfeld, our colleague at Fox, had talked about his mother-in-law who was stuck in Ukraine. And some of our colleagues at Fox who are reporting on the ground in that war-torn country were trying to help him and his family get his wife's mother out of Ukraine. And we said that we were praying for them and hoping that would resolve as soon as possible. Well, uh Asking you shall receive, this is almost like, you know, instant gratification. I'm told that Gutfeld on the five just moments ago announced that his mother-in-law has now crossed the border into Poland within the last hour. She is now on her way to see her daughter. She is safe. She's out of Ukraine. And we're very grateful. So I'm sure Greg is breathing a sigh of relief and just hats off to anyone here at Team Fox who is a part of that working to bring the world a lot of information on the air, but also working behind the scenes to help a member of the Fox family. That is just awesome stuff. Congratulations to anyone who had a hand in it. And our prayers, of course, continue for the Ukrainian people, those who may want to get out and can't, and those who don't want to leave and are going to fight. The Guy Benson Show continues after this. The Guy Benson Show. More next.
I'm Guy Benson. It's the happy hour here on the show. I want to give a quick shout-out to a friend of the program, Ryan Ferguson. If you're a regular listener, you might recall he did a full hour on this show with his father in the studio. This is a couple months ago. Ryan was wrongfully convicted of a murder when he was in his early 20s. I think actually even his late teens. A murder he had nothing to do with. Totally wrongful conviction. There's a documentary about it called Dream Killer. I recommend it. Look up this interview. It's available online. It's at GuyBensonShow.com. Google it. It's worth listening to. It's a a shocking story. Anyway, he's a great guy. And he and his dad came in. We did the interview. We've stayed in touch since. He has been a contestant in this current season of the amazing race on CBS, like this huge global almost scavenger hunt with a bunch of tasks and everything. I'd never seen the show before. It's been going for years. So he and his buddy were on a team. We talked about it a few weeks ago that we were rooting for him. We've been watching this season. Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. The finale was last night. He and his buddy did make it to the finale, to the final. They were a final three team. They didn't win, which is a bummer, but it was an impressive showing overall. The winning couple, by the way, apparently the oldest couple to ever win, the oldest team to ever win the Amazing Race. They didn't seem that old, maybe 10 years older than I am mid to late 40s but hats off to them congrats to ryan for making it that far pretty cool stuff when we come back congresswoman liz cheney joins us you're listening to a new generation of talk guy benson it's the guy benson show guy benson show.com online podcast always free with us now is congresswoman liz cheney republican of wyoming congresswoman good to have you back here Hey, Guy. Great to be back with you. Thank you. I saw a clip during the commercial break, actually, of Jen Psaki, the White House press secretary, being pressed earlier on the issue of importing oil from Russia, which we are still doing hundreds of thousands of barrels a day, millions of dollars. The question was, aren't we funding this war? Aren't we helping Putin in that respect? Doing plenty on the other side, of course. But what gives here? And Saki's response in part was, well, it's only 10 percent of what we're importing. Why is it not zero percent? I guess is the follow up. They don't seem to have a great answer to that. They also don't have good answers about domestic oil production, which they are hostile toward as a matter of ideology. I just wonder what you make of what seems to be a, a pretty significant contradiction here and this pickle that they've put the United States in by virtue of their so-called green policies. Well, you're exactly right, Guy. And and what we're watching happen is it's absolutely clear that uh, we ought to stop all uh, imports of Russian oil, uh, and we ought to unleash our own domestic production here. Uh, you know, in uh, during World War II, FDR described America as, as the arsenal of democracy for the world. We ought to be the arsenal of energy for the world, and we know we can. And and the problem the Biden administration has right now is that their policies with respect to the Green New Deal are directly at odds with being able to unleash our own domestic production. So uh, several colleagues of mine and I have sent a letter uh, to President Biden just today laying out the series of steps he needs to take, um, you know, to roll back, for example, to lift his ban on uh, leases on public lands. Uh, to uh, lift some of the just overwhelming regulatory 
um, the heavy hand of regulation that, that the domestic fossil fuel energy is facing. And it's a national security issue, and it's an economic security issue. So we absolutely ought to be doing far more in terms of our own production, and we, we should not continue to import Russian oil, which, as you said, funds, uh, funds the uh, unbelievable and horrific assault on the Ukrainian people right now. Are you satisfied with the level of support that the U.S. government is giving to Ukraine right now? No, I'm not. I think we have had a tremendous unity around the world in terms of uh, being very clear and imposing sanctions uh, across the board that we, we at a level we haven't seen before. Um, but having said that, the United States is not moving fast enough and we haven't done enough. And uh, a number of, of the sanctions that have been announced, for example, they, they don't take effect for 30 days or we're dealing with, um, you know, the, the SWIFT um, system where we've only cut off certain banks. Um, we need to be doing much more, much faster immediately um, and, and be, you know, absolutely clear. We ought to be leading the rest of the world. And I think, look, you know, We've done uh, an unprecedented amount, but it is not enough given the brutality that that Putin has decided to unleash on on Ukraine. Which apparently is going to get worse, uh, according to almost all indications at this point, which is extremely disturbing. I want to ask you, Congresswoman, about something that's related. We spent a fair amount of time in our second hour about it today. I think it's a story that is vastly underplayed. My guess is it's not underneath your radar, though, because you pay attention to this stuff pretty closely. It's uh, Iran and this negotiation that's been happening in Vienna for a while now, where the United States is negotiating with the Iranian regime through the Russians. And we continue to. I mean, given what Putin has done and is actively doing, we are still relying on his diplomats to try to broker this deal with Iran to get us back into an even worse nuclear deal with the Iranians, I mean, from our perspective, it's a great deal, apparently, the concessions from Iran's perspective. But I just saw a tweet, a clip of the Russian negotiator saying that he believes they're within 24 to 48 hours of reaching an agreement. Congress, to my understanding, has like no briefing on this. They don't know what would be in the deal. There is uh, reports and, and rumors leaking out that the concessions are extraordinary, even more preposterous than happened uh, in the Obama era. Again, Congress and the American people right now are in the dark on this, and there could be billions of dollars in sanction relief just going out the door should the Biden administration, through the Russians, strike this deal with Iran, I mean, t terrorists off the terrorist list, a bunch of sanctions relief in exchange for reportedly virtually nothing at all coming from the Iranian side. It's been so bad. The Wall Street Journal reported recently three of Biden's own team members have resigned in protest. I just wonder what you make of that. To me, this is very urgent because it could potentially get done over the weekend, according at least to this this Russian negotiator. And that is still a hugely important issue, even though there are obviously a lot of things happening in the world right now. This is one of them, and it does tie into Russia as well. It, yeah, it, it is exceedingly dangerous uh, and, and exceedingly misguided. Um, the the idea that, you know, at this moment we're going to lift sanctions on the Iranians, which means that they're going to have access to significant additional resources, which they will use for terrorist activity as they did before, 
the idea that we're going to get back into a nuclear agreement, which gives them a pathway to a nuclear weapon. You know, when the Obama administration entered into this agreement, and don't forget that Jake Sullivan, who's the current national security advisor, was the one conducting many of the secret negotiations with the Iranians during the Obama administration. But when they entered into the agreement, we were promised by then Secretary. And, and by the Kerry, way, now, now they've now they've outsourced that to Russia. Right. So yeah, it was Americans well, I mean, negotiating a bad deal back then. Yeah. Now it's Russians doing it for us. It's right. amazing. Right. So that, you know, Russia, number one, Russia needs to be treated like a pariah state across the board because of the assault that they've launched against Ukraine. At the same time, the idea that we'd be using them to negotiate this deal, which is going to make America much less safe uh, and, and which is completely indefensible when we're we're clearly at a moment where. Um, American security is threatened in ways that it has not been. Uh, we have not seen the kind of assault uh, on the continent of Europe since World War II that we're watching today. And, and the idea that we would now give Iran a pathway to a nuclear weapon, there's no verification. There's no, uh, you know, we've seen this before. It's, it's all a fantasy. And it's a fantasy that results in us giving the Iranians the kind of sanctions relief that is going to make them even more dangerous on the world stage. So, the notion that they're using the Russians to negotiate it um, is an absolute uh, just insult and travesty to yeah. uh, the Ukrainian people who are being killed and slaughtered right now and the American people whose security is going to be much, uh, much at risk if this deal yeah, it's, is it's The substance that's leaking out through these whistleblowers is just uh, quite frightening, actually. And it's insult yeah. to injury that it's the go-between here. Uh, is is a Russian diplomat, as if, you know, well, just business as usual. Let's figure out how to get a funnel a bunch of money to this terrorist state. Is there anything Congress can do, though? Because what these whistleblowers are saying, including it seems people who resigned from the negotiating team, they're saying that it's being done in such a way and would potentially be agreed to in such a way that Congress would have really no role until it was too late. Can you think of something that could be done now? Because it seems like this might be relatively imminent. Yeah. I mean, I think that, that one of the, obviously the power that Congress has, certainly the Senate is supposed to provide advice and consent. I think it's clear that the administration is unlikely to provide this as a treaty to the Senate. I think um, highlighting the danger of what they're doing and remembering that Congress has the power of the purse and looking for ways to prevent the expenditure of any resources uh, with respect to, to anything to carry out or implement this agreement is something that certainly uh, we're focused on, I think, making sure the American people understand and that, that you know, the Biden administration is going to have to pay a significant political price and a significant price right now um, if they're going to go down the path of entering into this agreement, which, again, is, is just, you know, in, incomprehensible uh, that you would make America less safe, that you would empower the Russians by letting them negotiate this uh, and that you would empower the Iranians who are funding terrorism around the world. Yeah, I mean, it, it almost – it reads like a caricature of what not to do, but it is right. apparently what is being done actively right now. And a lot of the Ukrainian stuff is getting tons of attention, and it should. This also merits attention, which is why we've been shining a spotlight on it today, and we appreciate your help in breaking it down. It's Congresswoman Liz Cheney, Republican Wyoming. Congresswoman, thank you so much. Thanks, Guy. Take care. Let's step aside. When we come back, the home stretch. Actually, it's very appropriate. The home stretch. Ah, we'll explain next.
Homestretch on the Guy Benson Show from Palm Beach, Florida on this Thursday. Glad to have you here. And we remind you, as always, that no matter where I am, the podcast is free every day on demand. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, wherever you get your podcasts. So because of all the huge international and domestic news in the last few days, we haven't really done a proper I guess traditional home stretch in the light sense of what we typically do here. We're going to try to have a lengthy extended one tomorrow because there's a lot to catch up on. For example, Curious Christine has been just bursting at the seams to ask me about the vacation that we haven't really addressed that I was on last week because it just didn't feel like the timing was right to do that. There's been so much serious news, and there might be enough serious news tomorrow that we – punt that discussion even further. But we're going to try tomorrow. And in the meantime, there's also a saga that we have been keeping up on, or at least keeping tabs on, for some time involving producer Christine's home. And last we checked, I believe the sale was going through. They were likely, almost certainly, going to move. She was going to be looking at apartments, and we didn't really get a final conclusion Yesterday, Christine was off because it sounded like she had some important business to attend to, including on this front. Christine, what can you tell us about your current and future residences? Well, I mean, this is a plan that's been in place for a very long time. And sometimes you say my schemes don't work, but this one did work. The house uh, closing, I think, is happening next week. And I got an apartment that we have the keys to this Saturday. So we will wow. start a slow move, but I think we'll be out of our house no later than the 14th. And that is so, it. So just a very important point of fact question for clarity. When you say that you have the keys to this new apartment this Saturday and that the closing is when for your house? So this is the problem we're having The buyers want us to close on the 8th because they already put movers into motion on the 10th. But we were just told last week we got the go-ahead to get an apartment. So uh, Bobby, myself, and my lawyer are saying "Mm, two weeks, you know, to get everything going and to move is – that's tough. Uh, Their lawyer is not budging. So right now we're having a little little go at that. But we're talking roughly, what, March 8th through 10th, somewhere in that range? Correct. Maybe? Yep. Okay. And I would just underscore March. I'm correct about uh, that? Uh-huh. March? Yes. Yeah. So the reason I'm asking about that is I recall a conversation that we had on this show where you spent some ridiculous amount of money to go to a psychic. And you mentioned to the psychic or tarot card reader, whatever it was, that you're going to be moving and you were selling your house and all this stuff. And she, while not predicting that you were going to go to the hospital a few days later, that's something she didn't see in the cards. What she did see in the cards was you were going to be selling your house and moving in April. So I know she probably just Googled what the average time horizon was for oh. a house closing, but it seems like she's going to be off. I mean, Wait, are, she the, te- are the cards just a little bit off? She texted me yesterday. Get out of here. Yeah, she wrote, hello, I'm sending love and light unto you. 
Um, I felt over you. That's why I'm messaging you, dear. Can I consider you again for a private reading? I feel I felt over you. I don't really know what that meant, but Bobby said, please don't respond. Yeah, I think uh, there's probably a lot of people who text you that they're over you. Right, the, the people that you're, that you're constantly trying to book on the show, you're harassing them nonstop. They're like, <laughs> you're just like, hi, hello, I, I bestow blessings upon you uh, and unto you. Uh, please stop calling me. I'm over you. But that, are you sure it's from the psychic? <laughs> are you positive. sure it's not from one of our other guests? No, I, and I, I said to check. Bobby, how cool is that? She texts me. Well, she was trying to get you to come give her more money. Right, but she isn't that weird? Yesterday she texted no. me when everything was happening. Like she felt something no. and said, Yes, she it's said a, it. It's a that's what she does. It's a regularly scheduled text message to all of her clients, which is like, Hey, haven't heard from you in a while. You've left me on red. I sure would like some money from you. And then whatever's happening to you on that day, people like you are like, Oh, there's there's meaning here. She thought of me today for this reason. Obviously, it's, it's part of the grift. You're falling for it again. And she got it wrong. She got the house closing wrong. She well, told maybe you that's what she, maybe she felt something. No, hold on. You're so wrong about this. I think she texted me yesterday because she knew maybe it changed and she felt it. So but that's she didn't why mention she, that. She didn't mention that in the text. She was just like, hey, can no. you give me some more money? She's no. like, and, and you can fill in the blanks for why it's so important. She called me what, dear. She said, oh. I was felt over you. That's why I message you, dear. Can I consider you for a private reading? Yeah, no. I, I'd say no. Right? It's probably the best answer to that. But I guess congrats on the house thing. I, I still don't want to give you full congratulations until all the paperwork is signed and it's I know. officially I know. Done. Are you gonna are you gonna come to the new apartment when we're ready? Well, we'll see. I mean, a big question is, will I ever be invited? Because right, right. that's never happened before anywhere that you've lived, including on Eyesore Lane, which you're going to have oh, to say goodbye to. I, I know. I know. I know. But maybe. We'll, I'm going to give you a maybe, I, unless I'm feeling over you, in which case I'll just text. And can I, speaking of Eyesore Lane, I'm just going to leave you with this. You say that um, my decor taste is a little tacky at times, but I well, just, just want... based on your description, I've never seen it, right. in fairness. But I just want to let you know that the buyers bought our living room set, our master bedroom set, our guest room set, and all of our patio furniture. What about the inflatables? So I think I'm going to give them to that as like a present. Because my mom, I wanted to give it to my mother, and she said no. I yeah, offered no it to it. a neighbor down So it's, you're giving it as a quote-unquote gift. It's like, here, you can get rid of this. No, they're not going to get rid of it. Here's what you should do. Here's what I I allow you, in my opinion, I would allow you to text the psychic back and say, I would like another reading, but as collateral, as a form of payment, will you please accept my lawn inflatables? And just see what she says. You know, I have a little card reading that I, I can imagine what she's going to say, but I'll let that be a big surprise for you when you ask Cleo or whatever her name is, if you can pay her in inflatables. Because surely she cares about you. This is, a, this is a meaningful, heartfelt gift from you, and she cares. right? She called you dear, after all. She said, oh, of course, of course. I'm sure that's absolutely what she's in it for. Making you feel good, bringing light into your life, and lawn inflatables. You get back to me and see how that goes. That's the, uh, that's the homework assignment. In the meantime, we're done. 
Back here tomorrow for the Friday edition of the Guy Benson Show from the Sunshine State of Florida. Excited to be back here. We will talk to you then. Have a great night. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a -a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.